For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Join a competitive group of female drivers from around the world who gathered to test their speed and skill in the desert. Hear how reigning Miss Tucson, Abby Charles, is using her platform and her UA degree to confront the widespread impact of food insecurity. And author Michelle Ross speaks on creating literary worlds in miniature for her short story collection, Shapeshifting. That's all coming up next on Arizona Spotlight. In the first weekend of February, Southern Arizona played host to an international cast of visitors. As Tony Perkins reports, they were trying out for roles in a real-life drama playing out this year on competitive motor racing tracks around the world. Winter wind gusts blow through the hills in Cochise County near Wilcox. It's at the end of a long drive to the Indy Motorsports Ranch, about 12 miles beyond I-10. Out in the distance, you can see the traffic on the interstate. And that's when you realize the journey's been a bit further for 19-year-old Hannah Greenmeyer. She's a Colorado native, taking part in a motorsports test session here, along with more than a dozen other professional racing hopefuls, all young women, on a twisting 21-turn road course. My goals for this test is to just gain some more experience. This will be a rare chance for Greenmeyer to drive a single-seat Formula racing car. It's a $60,000 machine that looks like a fighter jet, but one designed to stick to the ground instead of taking flight. Greenmeyer figures she'll start slowly. I have very little car experience, so I think it's a great opportunity that I have here to just kind of learn. Success, in this case, is driving the car at a consistent average speed of almost 100 miles an hour. The ambition for Greenmeyer and the others is to win a starting spot in the W Series, a competitive racing circuit that's making history worldwide with an all-female lineup. The European-based series ran its first race in the United States last summer and plans for two events in the USA in 2022 on courses in Miami and in Texas. Series CEO Catherine Bond helped create the exclusive opportunity for women racers with a deal that included an international television contract. In our first race in Hockenheim in Germany in 2019, we put 18 drivers racing against each other on a track. Let's see what happens. No one had ever seen anything like that before. Good start from Alice Powell from pole position and a good start from Baitsky Visser in the number 95 car, the white car trying to get past. Bonner says the series chose Southern Arizona for its first American test session because the evaluation team needed dependable dry weather. Each driver must match the speed set by veteran W Series racers like Belen Garcia, another 19-year-old from Spain. 
Well, I have to be consistent. I am the, the one that sends the benchmark for the drivers, so my job is to be always at the same level for the W Series crew to select people or not. Garcia's time in the series has seen its ups and downs, including a spectacular crash in Belgium last season. That is absolutely horrific. That is a horrible accident. None of the drivers suffered serious injuries. Is that everyone involved in that is okay. But the incident left a trail of broken cars. Belen Garcia, car number 22. It's, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? And a rash of unkind messages on social media, rekindling old stereotypes about women behind the wheel. W Series officials say they've already put those notions behind them. This season, the series will stage some of its events on the same weekends and at the same venues as Formula One, the world's leading racing series. That's the ultimate goal for Garcia and other women who know the odds are still stacked against them in a male-dominated sport. I have to say I never wondered. I was always sure we could, and I, I didn't understand why we weren't as equal as men. I mean, there's no explanation, just... We can be there, we are there, and we will be there forever. The last woman to race in a Formula One Grand Prix was Italy's Leila Lombardi 45 years ago. There's a chance the next one will have started her road to the sport's highest level on a wind-swept desert track in Arizona. I'm Tony Perkins for Arizona Spotlight. The W Racing Series starts its season in Miami on May 8th, followed by races in England, Hungary, France, and Japan, before returning to Texas for the Circuit of the Americas in October. Abby Charles is a young woman whose dreams have helped her to achieve some impressive goals. Charles graduated from the University of Arizona with a degree in nutritional science with an emphasis on dietetics. Her personal mission is to help improve food security for all Tucsonans, and that mission received a big boost when she was named Miss Tucson 2022. I talked with Abby Charles about her goals and using her pageant title to promote positive change. One of the biggest complications that we have when it comes to food security, specifically in regards to the summer, is the heat. If we are living in a food desert, somewhere that has mildly nice weather, okay, you can get on a bus possibly, you can get a ride, and then you can go to a food bank or a lower price grocery store. But here in the summertime, if you need to take a form of transportation that is in the lower price index, then to some extent, it really can be a life or death matter trying to go to that food bank or trying to um, go to the lower price grocery store, especially because we are spread out. So our food deserts with the added heat have an extra amount of danger. And something that many food banks across the state that I have been told through my interviews with um, different coordinators are seeing is a lack actually of interest in the food that they're giving out because we've become such an instant society, microwave, 
fast food, etc., that if it's not a easy peasy kind of meal to put together, to some extent it's like, well, what do I what do I do with a box mm-hmm. of tomatoes? Yeah. What do I do with a potato? It's not a French fry; it's a <laughs> right. potato. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that lack of cooking knowledge, and it's actually very interesting because that was one of the debates that I've heard in regards to taking home ec out of schools. Um, many people said, "Oh, you know, this is not useful," but to some extent, home economics, which is what the degree of nutritional science has actually started under um, many, many decades ago. It really is teaching how to have a stable and healthy lifestyle so you can go utilize other talents in the community. Well, for people who are looking for positive change in their food habits, you've made a great suggestion there. Learning how to cook can really change the game for what you're putting into your body. So expand on that or tell us about another suggestion you might have. Definitely, um, especially for us in the desert, drink water. Any season, drink water. Um, Drink probably more than you think you need. And if you say, oh, I want to have to get up and keep using the restroom, that's okay. That's cardio. That's more steps. Get your steps in for the day. Um, Because, (laughs) (laughs) yes, it's always positive if you look at it with the right mindset. With water, it helps so much. It hydrates your body. It's great for your skin, great for your organs, and it really helps your food to digest. So many people um, are struggling with GI issues in our country, and water is one of those things that wherever you are, it is so important. Abby, when I first moved here in the 1990s, I had to walk two or three miles to get home. So I would walk these two or three miles in the dead of summer, right during the peak heat time. And I would get home and I would feel devastated. I wasn't much of a water drinker when I lived in Texas. Texas, where I'm from, is very humid. And so I was used to having moisture around me all the time. But when I got here in this dry environment, I found that if if I got home and I started drinking some room temperature water, not cold water, as quickly as I could or as much as I wanted, I could just feel it making me feel better. Ever since then, I've been a devoted water drinker. So for people who say, oh, I never touch the stuff, like you're, you're robbing yourself of one of the simple joys in life of feeling hydrated. Yes, and you know, I'm actually glad you mentioned that because it made me think of something very, very important that I think is a universal um, tip I'd give. And we usually don't give universal tips in nutrition because everyone, to some extent, is their own walking science experiment when it comes to nutrition. (laughs) But I actually prefer room temperature water because cold water can cause stomach cramps because it makes your stomach muscles contract. If I could encourage the audience to have an open mindset to trying new forms of health practices through your food, it really can make a difference. I toured the Pima County um, cafeteria for the, the jail, and I spoke with the director, and she mentioned a lot of times when some of the inmates arrived before COVID, when she was able to make um, different meals that were more flexible in regards to menu. Sometimes she would try a new dish, like a kale salad, and the inmates would say to her, like, I don't know what that is. I'm not going to eat that. And she's like, no, no, just try it. And they're like, no, I don't want to. And she's come on, just try it. And they try it, and they love it. Um, because unfortunately, many of the inmates that arrive haven't had the experience of home-cooked meals. And so on that note, there are so many wonderful foods that can help with multiple ailments that many people in the community are dealing with. But because we may have not been 
raised to think that that food um, is something we should try or we're afraid of the food under different circumstances of cooking methods, maybe even with different company or different environments, we can really learn to like foods if we attach them with a positive mindset as this food is giving me health and that's what I really want in the long run. Some people who are in incarceration have grown up thinking chicken McNuggets were the ideal food and that if it didn't come out of a bag from Quick Trip, it wasn't a good snack. I know that you're very concerned with childhood nutrition, and I, oh, yeah. I want to know, you know, before people find themselves in a situation where they're only used to processed food, uh, what mm-hmm. can parents do to help their children get on the right foot with nutrition? One of my classes I really enjoyed during my undergrad studies was family nutrition because nutrition really starts um, before the little one even comes out. You know, if you want really healthy kids, it starts today. It starts even before you meet your significant other. Your body is containing the components that is going to make this little life form. So it's very important that you are being proactive with your own health because, like I mentioned, to some extent, you are the ingredients of what this little one is going to be made out of. And so I definitely encourage um, as much as you can, staying hydrated, thinking about the foods that you're eating and how it's going to affect your body. And something that I really like to highlight is so many advertisements on TV um, for children's foods. They are really counterproductive for a little one's health. And even though it might seem like it's an innocent snack, if you are getting your child's metabolism used to um, high processed food and high amounts of sugar, high amounts of fat, when they're young, that's what their norm is. And so if it's set high at the beginning, it gets higher as they get older. Um, So that's something I'd really encourage anybody, any source of income to think twice about what is it that I'm really feeding my child? Um, Because there are ways around that. Portion size is a very big topic in the nutrition community when it comes to um, working with little ones. Many children are given portions that are much too big for their little bodies. So if you put your hand in a fist, both your hands, and you put them together, that is about the size of your stomach. So if you think about your stomach like a balloon, if we are teaching the little balloons in children's stomachs, you know, to overstretch, 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 it's going to get used to that feeling, and it's going to identify that feeling as, okay, my meal is complete when my stomach feels overstretched, and it will continue that habit throughout lifetime, and that's not what you want. You want to eat enough where your tummy says to your brain, okay, you know what? I'm no longer hungry. Not necessarily full, but no longer hungry. Because then you still need some room in your stomach for the gases and the digestive process to take place. So I am not personally a believer of making a child clean a plate. Satiety is the word that we use when our stomachs are satisfied. Our satiety sensors, when we're little, they are working fine. They haven't been overstretched. They haven't practiced going beyond their limit. So when a little one says, oh, mommy, daddy, I'm full. I don't want to eat anymore. Okay. You wrap it up, and then you have it for the next day, possibly. Um, Although something that I've experienced working with children, specifically as a nanny during college, oh, Miss Abby, I'm full. Can I have my dessert now? Uh, No, 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 no. And so that's when it kind of comes into bartering. Well, you know what? Maybe the child ate half of its lunch or dinner, so you give them half of the dessert. That way it's still taking into consideration their needs as a human being. Everyone wants something sweet. I am an advocate for balance. I think balance is so important. 
Now, some people listening to you right now, Abby, might think, well, mm -hmm. for some people, it's easy to control their appetite and to steer themselves in the direction of fruit instead of candy. Can you share with us something from your own life experience where you've had perhaps a struggle or you've had to make a commitment, a serious commitment to yourself in your own favor regarding food choices? Yes, um, I'm actually glad that you mentioned this because um, everybody has an area where they struggle. Some people are just more vocal about it um, when it comes to their consumption habits. Something that I personally have to take accountability for I know that I I might love ice cream. I might love cheese in my food, but my skin, my skin does not. Whenever I eat too much dairy, my skin, it breaks out. And sometimes it's easier to turn the other cheek, but when you're getting your picture taken, you really have to think about this. And it might sound superficial, although when our skin or other parts of our body start acting up due to the foods that we're eating, we may say, you know what, oh my gosh, I ate a quesadilla today, now I have a pimple. And it might not sound fun to talk about, but it really is your body saying, excuse me, our metabolism didn't like this, can we please not eat this again? That's really what's happening on a deeper cellular level, and it's manifesting through something like your skin. So for me, it has been a challenge, but I try to avoid cheese, avoid dairy, try to go with the vegan options when it comes to ice cream. And if I really feel like, you know what, oh my gosh, I just really feel like I want a quesadilla today, then I'll go for cheeses that are white. White cheeses don't have as much coloring and other processing in it. Um, whenever people ask me about dairy, I always mention them, you know what, why? Think about it. Why is cheddar cheese, um, some cheddars, orange? When is milk ever orange in their faces? Oh my goodness, you're right. <laughs> And so um, even though it might seem like a superficial um, point to bring up, it really is a manifestation of your body saying, we're trying to give you a sign this is not for you. I spoke with Abby Charles, who currently holds the title of Miss Tucson. She'll be competing in the statewide pageant coming this summer. You can find out more about her campaign to alleviate food insecurity at abbycharles.com. The Unexpected plays a big role in many of the 14 short stories contained in Shapeshifting, a new collection by Tucson-based author Michelle Ross. It's an eclectic mix, and it asks readers to consider the inner lives of mothers and daughters, some of whom don't really even know themselves. Michelle Ross uses an economy of words, leaving nothing to waste. I began our interview by asking how she honed her writing skills, which reminded me of focusing a microscope kind of in a roundabout way. I mean, when I went to graduate school for creative writing, I thought I wanted to write novels. But of course, you know, for a workshop type situation, it just made more sense to write short stories. I mean, we were reading short stories. You, you want to submit something that people can discuss within a class. And then over the course of that, I just ended up falling in love with short stories. And now I have a hard time imagining writing a novel. I think the second part to that answer, too, is that really ever since I had my son about, you know, he's almost 12 now, I really got drawn to flash fiction after he was born because 
it fit my lifestyle. You know, I, I was busy all the time. So like being able to find these little pockets of time to write made more sense with really short stories than it did with, you know, a very long story or a novel where you, I think you really kind of need long periods of time to get the momentum of the piece going. Something I felt from reading your book, Shapeshifting, which is a collection of stories, was that you have a real momentum yourself as a writer. There's an architectural structure to your writing that is comforting. I don't read a whole lot of fiction anymore. For me to feel like I was in the hands of someone who had very carefully constructed the story uh, was reassuring. Michelle, can you reflect a little bit on what you think your writing style is like and how much planning and pre-construction do you do before you start writing a story? I really do very little to zero planning in most cases. That's interesting. Mostly I sit down and I just start writing something. You know, there might be a character or dialogue or image or setting or some little thing that that I start with, and then I just kind of follow it to see where it goes. Even in the few cases where I do have more of a sense of the story before I start, like the last story in this book, A Mouse is a House for Teeth, that was probably one of the fastest stories I've written in the whole collection. I'd kind of had this feeling of the kind of story I wanted to write before I started. You know, I, I wanted this certain feeling about early motherhood, this exaggerated feeling of being trapped in a house and, and not being able to go anywhere and, and just not really knowing what quite is real anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's where we've all been living for like two years now. Yeah, and that's the funny thing. I wrote this before that whole thing started. I mean, mm. it's a pre-pandemic story, although I didn't write it very long before the pandemic started. But yeah, it does feel very familiar now to what everybody's experienced you just mentioned motherhood as being one of the themes, and that is a strong theme in shapeshifting. And for someone who is not a parent, and moreover, someone who is male, I felt like I was being let in on some secrets. Uh, and your publisher talks about the cult of motherhood <laughs> being a concept that's in your book. And uh, that's what it felt like. It felt like I was reading secret notes from the meetings of the cult of motherhood. Um, what would you say to that? Mainly, when I think of men reading this book, I just hope they find something that they're drawn to in these stories. I mean, that, that to me was probably my biggest concern publishing a book about motherhood and mothering is that, you know, am I alienating a huge potential audience by the topic? I think my number one goal in pretty much every story I write is to tell the truth about something. I don't mean autobiographically, but, you know, this larger truth. I want to feel like I'm being honest and getting down to the core of what I'm actually writing about instead of, you know, skating the surface or telling stories the way I've heard them before. I want to, I want to do something new that feels really raw and honest. According to your bio, in addition to your fiction work, you work as a science writer. And I wonder... How do you feel about the current anti-science trend that is permeating our culture? It's not exactly new, but somehow, ironically, mm -hmm. through the means of technology and social media, it seems like anti-science sentiments are flourishing. 
just hearing you state that right now, it's I <laughs> I hear the irony of it, right? That you know, it's through technology that people <laughs> are, are turning their back to... on technology. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I find it really scary. Um, I I also think a lot of it comes from just lack of understanding about what science is and how it works. Um, I think of science as being very similar to fiction writing. I think they're both the same kind of thing. You're you're exploring the world, trying to understand people and the world we live in better by asking questions, not assuming that you know the answers, but asking those questions and see what thing will happen following those questions. And now Michelle Ross reads an example of flash fiction in this short story called Palette Cleanser. See this postcard of a hotel, this window circled in blue ink? That's the room in which I realized I would leave your father. You were there with me, in fact, though I'm sure you don't remember. You couldn't have been more than three. Your father was in Chicago for business, and on a whim, I drove us out of town for the weekend. I'd never done a thing like that in my life. Once we were settled into the hotel, I walked you down the street, a sidewalk shaded by enormous elms, ginkgos, and maples, to this French restaurant where they served a fixed menu every evening. Three courses, three choices per course. And in between the salad and the dessert, a palate cleanser. In this case, a lemon sorbet served in a little blue goblet. The grin on your face when the waiter set that blue goblet before you, your own little goblet. For the courses, I had given you bites from my plate. You had eaten that food dutifully, but only the sorbet made you smile before you even tasted it, because it was beautiful, because it was all yours. That's how I felt at that hotel. It was the first time in my life that I'd stayed at a hotel all by myself. Well, not by myself, really. You were there. What I mean is, I was the only adult. I was in charge. I could do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. I could, for instance, take my toddler to a fancy restaurant that her father wouldn't even take me to. It was a feeling I hadn't known I was missing. And once I felt it, I wasn't willing to give it up. Like how after that palate cleanser, when the waiter brought out that one chocolate souffle for us to share, your grin vanished, your face reddened. The waiter had barely even taken his hand from the plate. I saw the look of panic on his face. You were the only child in the place, much less the only toddler. It was not the kind of restaurant where one took children. I quickly pushed that souffle toward you before you wailed. Michelle Ross's recent collection of stories is called Shapeshifting, published by Stillhouse Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Etai Sofer. 
I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.